Welcome to Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert, a podcast sponsored by the Healing Lives Center. Discover how to love and lead your family well and biblically. God created sex, marriage, and the family for our stewardship, growth, and benefit. My heart and passion is to teach, train, educate, and disciple Christians that want strong marriages and families. The Healing Life Center has been serving Christians since the year 2000. Its mission is to be a center for sex, trauma, and marriage education and transformation, where we offer counseling, coaching, courses, and speaking services to you, your church, or ministry. Check us out at HealingLives.com. Welcome back. This is our last one. This is Lost in Transnation. A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness by Dr. Miriam Grossman. And today we're wrapping up with the conclusion. Um, these are some really important stories and call to actions and summary um, that are that are going to be important for you to, to think through. So how does she conclude such an empower, important, powerful work? Um, here's some good stories. So James is sporting a scruffy beard. Sarah wears skirts and doesn't care about pronouns. Taylor wants to talk about college, not testosterone. These small changes, all seen or reported to me recently by patients or their parents, are big. In this book, I've described monumental struggles and grief, but I want you to know there's hope. Young people and their families, such as those those you've read about, can be helped with therapy. They can slow their pace on the assembly line that leads to harm. Some even step off. They can accept, even enjoy their bodies. It's far from guaranteed and not always an easy road, but it's possible. How do I treat my gender distressed patients? The same way I treat any other, with respect, empathy, curiosity, honesty, and with their lifelong happiness and well-being foremost in my mind. I begin with, tell me about yourself, I say. I want to know who you are. My patients have been led to believe they face a simple issue with a simple solution. I explain this is not so. They are, like all people, a huge, complex tapestry of which gender occupies just a small corner. The entire tapestry interests me, not only the one corner. We'll talk about gender, of course, but instead of automatic affirmation, we will look deeper. We will try to determine what um, living as the opposite sex accomplishes. How will it make life better or easier? Is the new identity about becoming someone new or fleeing who they are? Granted, some of my questions may make them uncomfortable, but this is the biggest decision of their lives and it deserves a close, careful look. I look at my patient's family. Is there conflict in her home, an ill parent or sibling? I determine if she has a psychiatric condition such as anxiety, depression, OCD, ADD, psychosis, or if she's on the autism spectrum or has some other form of neurodiversity. Is there a history of adoption trauma or abuse, uh, social awkwardness or bullying, attraction to the same sex? Is the trans identity a way of exploring themselves separate from their family, a normal task of adolescence taken to an extreme? There may be stereotypical beliefs about men and women that are mistaken. He may think he's not manly and won't find love or acceptance as he is. Maybe she or someone she loves was harmed. She feels helpless against male aggression and for that reason seeks to flee femininity. Perhaps he or she fears growing up. The point is, 
being trans is a solution, a coping mechanism, but not which problem, but not to, to which problem, or but to which problem. That's the mystery we will solve together. One of my primary responsibilities is education. I am older and wiser, and that benefits my patients. One line that's effective with know-it-all adolescents, you're 16, I'm 116. Over my decades of practice, I learned many things, one of which is that people change. A Bernie supporter turns around and votes Republican. Couples once madly in love, certain about marriage, now at each other's throats. A woman couldn't have been more certain about aborting. 20 years later, she's childless and rethinking that decision. People change. I tell my patients, you're going to change too. Another wisdom I share is that being human means struggling. It means living with limitations and weaknesses. You're not the first person to hate your body, feel disconnected from your parents, and lack a place of belonging. You're not the first human being to experience confusion, pain, and loneliness. Under some circumstances, I might share a hardship of my own. Even more important is to reveal difficulties to a patient at the moment. In doing so, she or he learns I have tough moments too, but they can be managed. For example, if I fear a patient's response, I might say, I must tell you something, but I have mixed feelings about it because of how you may react. The patient learns I too have fear of conflict. I feel unsure just like she does. I've demonstrated how I tolerate those emotions. A patient needs to feel safe and understood. It's in that trusting and honest space between us that healing begins. I try to model thoughtfulness, humility, and especially compassion. We must have compassion for ourselves and others, including our parents. They too are human with limitations and struggles. They're doing or did the best they could, and it wasn't all bad. Ultimately, the choice is theirs, I tell my patients. Their identity is in their hands. At the same time, whether they're requesting new pronouns or surgery, there are risks. I'm obligated to point out what they are doing has massive implications. What will their lives be like in 10, 20, 50 years? There may be a high price to pay. I remind patients that a physician, as a physician, I have a profound appreciation for the body's wisdom. They may think they have all the information they need. They may be convinced they're knowledgeable about social and medical interventions, but I know they don't, and they're not. From new names to mastectomies and vaginoplasties, they must understand the risks and the controversy. If I neglect to delineate those risks and the current debate, I'm not doing my job. What if he or she comes back crying, look what I've done to myself, why didn't you warn me? Speaking of risks, that's one I am unwilling to take. I strongly encourage gender distress patients to at some point read detransitioner stories or watch their videos. When patients are unwilling to do so, or unable to hear about the dangers of medicalizing, or if they claim to be unconcerned and confident, those are red flags. All of us have some degree of doubt when we face major decisions. Every decision has pluses and minuses. To be confident and wrong is dangerous. It's also my job to gently challenge and plant seeds as I described in Lasagna Surprise. 
being from older generation, I ask my young patients to define the new language and explain their beliefs. I'm curious. I want to learn from them. If their definitions or explanations don't satisfy me, I'll say so. The goal is to recognize everyone as a mosaic of male and female, honor the mosaic, and leave the body alone. And to parents, you must respect your child's mosaic too. He or she may not match your ideas about masculinity and femininity. Below are examples of patients with uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria whose dysphoria diminished or resolved altogether with therapy. At the risk of presenting a simplistic portrayal of a highly complex and lengthy process, I focus on one or two themes of their therapies. These portrayals are composites of several patients and identifying details have been changed. James. 19-year-old James was from Austin, Texas. For the past year, he'd been using a gender-neutral name, they, them pronouns, shaving his chest, arms, and legs, and wearing nail polish. He, he told me, I want to go on estrogen so I can cry. The idea of being perceived as a girl felt comforting to James. He reported feeling happy with his smooth, hairless body and experiencing less pressure to meet cultural expectations. Being attracted to women, he imagined himself in a future lesbian relationship. What soon became clear was in the variations of men that James knew, he never saw himself. James was always small, underweight, and quiet. He hated sports, was ridiculed by boys in his class, and felt com more comfortable with girls. His fondest memories were the hours spent caring for his pet rabbit and playing the flute. An older neighbor had sexually molested James, but he had never told anyone. James's mother had a chronic illness. When she was well enough, she was preoccupied with her business and not so much with her family. His father was more available, but he was unpredictable and prone to angry outbursts. James was repulsed by his father's coarse behavior, cursing, passing gas, and walking around in his underwear. His older brothers were physically competitive and boisterous. No one in the family was unkind, but James acutely sensed his otherness and was lonely throughout his childhood. James entered puberty late and in high school he felt estranged from his peers who already shaved and were sexually active. His academic success did little to quash the certainty he could never meet the expectations of family and peers. James and I spent many hours examining his childhood, the sexual abuse, the especially and especially his rejection by peers and experience of a mismatch with his brothers and father's masculinity. He would insist, I don't want to become a hairy old man. I pointed out that being um, crude is a human, not male quality. Women can be vulgar, too. We spoke about the wide range of masculinity and my belief that he could find his place in it. He was, like all of us, a mosaic of femininity and masculinity, and altering his body to resemble that of a girl wasn't necessary to be refined, emotionally expressive, and compassionate. I taught him about the dangers of taking estrogen, including the impact of his sexual function and fertility. I wondered about his assumption of easily finding romance amongst lesbians and suggested instead that medicalizing would restrict his number of potential partners. He learned some skills for coping with distress. My patient slowly understood that as a child he had associated masculinity with his father's Neanderthal habits and body hair, leading to the rejection of both and a sweeping denial of manhood. A turning point came while describing his emotional isolation in childhood, and James began to cry. I said I was sorry he went through all such hardship. It's optimal when parents are persistently tuned in 
to their children, but often that's not the case. I told him I wished I'd been there to ease his way. He was exhibiting strength by permitting himself to cry with me, not weakness, I said. And there are many women who are attracted to men who are kind, caring, and emotionally expressive. He can be loved just the way he is. James' preoccupation with his body hair diminished. He took up a new hobby, rock climbing, and his strength and muscle mass increased. And he reported moments of distress related to the changes, especially um, if others notice. He coped by saying to himself, I am who I am. And being a man means getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. I encouraged him to identify more ways he could leave his comfort zone. He hadn't shaved his arms or legs for months, but tolerated the dysphoria of wearing a tank top. One day he appeared in my office with a scruffy beard. He confessed he'd bought into a stereotype and his ideas of masculinity weren't based in reality. He was a man, just different from the ones who raised him. James returned to, his, uh, to using his given name and male pronouns. When asked how he felt, he said, so natural, like stepping into a pair of old shoes. Sarah. Sarah was from Portland, Oregon. A few months earlier, she picked the name Malcolm and they them pronouns. Sarah planned to go on testosterone and have top surgery when she turned 16. She flattened her breasts with a binder all day and believed a lower voice and facial hair would improve her life, although she couldn't say exactly how. With the informed consent model of care in her state, she could get what uh, she wanted without parental approval. During our first meeting, Sarah's self-loathing was on full display. I hate my wide hips and large chest. I don't make eye contact and people notice that. I'm different. I have odd habits. I'm a mess, basically. I asked Sarah what she does like about herself. A long pause followed, then a timid smile. The only smile I saw on her that day. I love to sing. And I think I have a pretty good voice. She loves to sing, I thought to myself. And she wants testosterone? Oh, God. There was so much I wanted to warn Sarah about, but the clock was ticking. Sarah would turn 16 in 14 months. Would that be enough time for her to realize hormones and surgery are not the answer? Or will she walk into a Planned Parenthood on her birthday and get her first injection of tea? Prior to seeing me, Sarah's parents restricted her internet use, successfully averted a meltdown by presenting Sarah with a new companion and time-consuming distraction, a puppy. In therapy, we spoke of her years of difficulty f fitting in with other girls. Their manner of relating was a black box to her, incomprehensible. They rejected Sarah, so she hung out with the boys. But that only lasted until puberty hit, and it hit her early and fast. She was subjected to stares and comments, not only from peers, but from grown men, including an uncle. She needed a bra in fifth grade, and her period started in sixth. Sarah's thinking about her identity was black and white. If she felt so miserable in her girl's body, she must be a boy. She had frequent insomnia. Her days were filled with worry, and she met criteria for high-functioning autism. Melatonin improved her sleep. I taught her ways to tolerate negative feelings, cognitive behavioral therapy, observing and and then revi revising her thoughts, feelings, and actions, alleviating her distress a bit, but not enough. After a few months, I added medication targeting her anxiety and obsessive angst about her appearance. She soon reported feeling calmer and her parents confirmed the improvement. I always ask patients, what is the best and worst thing that ever happened to them? For Sarah, the worst was the night of the mass shooting at the Pulse Club in Orlando. 
She overheard her father's homophobic comments and became convinced he'd never accept her. This led to a discussion of her interest in girls, something she'd never shared with anyone. Sarah was unsure if her feelings were romantic. Sexual attraction was another black box for her. But there was someone in her church choir with whom she wished to spend more time. Sarah was a star at the choir. She loved singing so much that she'd switch her restrictive binder to, for a sports bra. Her extended family attended her, her performances in which she always did, had a solo. The choir was her opportunity to shine. I saw her opportunity as well to teach her about testosterone. Sarah's anxiety skyrocketed when presented with information that challenged her rigid beliefs about gender identity. We discussed how black and white, all or nothing thinking felt safe, while gray represented representing nuance and uncertainty felt perilous. I explained that the plans she had to medicalize would be the most con consequential decision of her life, and she owed it to herself to know the risks entailed. We reached an agreement. At each session, Sarah would learn about one effect of testosterone while we kept tabs on her anxiety. If it got close to a distressing level, she could use her coping skills. The start was bumpy, but Sarah was gradually able to listen. We went slowly. She learned testosterone is FDA approved only for use in men with medical conditions. Sarah hadn't realized the, the lowering of her voice would happen so quickly within a few months and that she might experience hoarseness and other vocal issues. She was convinced a lower voice would give her more self-confidence, but hadn't considered its impact on singing and participation in choir. She'd also not taken into account testosterone's potential impact on her emotions and libido. libido. Now that she was coping better with stress, she didn't want to risk developing the anger and aggression sometimes seen when girls take testosterone. And Sarah wanted comp companionship, not sex. To be in a state of arousal distracted uh, many times a day uh, by thoughts and images was not appealing. After a few months, Sarah tolerated a degree of uncertainty about medical intervention. I was proud of her ability to venture into gray areas. She agreed to move on to facts about breastbinding. Again, there were risks of which she hadn't been aware. Our conversations also touched on brain development and the banning um, in which some countries of medical interventions for minors. We were also talking about her autism, the years of social ostracism and bullying and the shame of her developing body. I explained that sometimes, especially in childhood, we lack the capacity to experience powerful emotions. The feelings can't be processed. In response, the mind might place the emotions into the body or the attitude toward the body. Sarah's body was feminized early. Her mother prepared her for the changes but couldn't prevent the harassment and stares. Sarah held her agony in those parts of herself that were unwanted. But even if her breasts were removed, I explained the agony would find another home in her body and that would continue until the agony itself was felt and shared with me. That's why we needed to keep talking about her past. Now that she was older, her ability to feel those overwhelming emotions was higher. Feeling them in a place of support and understanding would remove the body's burden. Sarah agreed to watch some videos of detransitioners, and I suggested Helena Kirshner um, due to her horrific reaction to testosterone, and Laura Becker, who is autistic. I told Sarah's parents that her nascent same-sex attraction and certainty of her father's rejection could be elements in the genesis of her boy identity. Sarah's friendship with the girl in choir blossomed, and to her surprise, her parents were accepting. Even better, her girlfriend liked her just the way she was.
that was wonderful news and an opportunity to discuss the pleasures of the body. Testosterone and mastectomies could negatively impact those pleasures for the rest of her life. She turned 16 and announced she wouldn't be making any decisions about hormones until much later when her brain was fully mature. Sarah still likes to be called Malcolm, but she's also wearing skirts and doesn't really care about pronouns. She knows that identity is an evolving process. She's still figuring um, hers out, and that's okay. Regarding top surgery, she now thinks a reduction would be enough. Taylor. I heard Taylor's story from her, from her mother, Anne. Taylor languished in a Chinese orphanage for the first 18 months of her life prior to adoption by Anne and her husband, who live outside Chicago. Taylor's early trauma was severe. Now, 16 years old, she always had difficulty with trust, attachment, and self-esteem. Taylor developed uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria and tried to buy testosterone online. Her first three therapists were affirming, and her mental health uh, deteriorated. Deep depression, self-injury, and overdose. Anne was beside herself, watching her daughter struggle. Through research in parents' groups, and she became convinced Taylor was in a cult. Anne told me nothing was helping and I needed to do something, anything. My hair was on fire. Through the parents' grapevine, she heard some families say, uh, saw positive results after consulting with cult experts. On a Zoom call, Anne and her husband's suspicions were validated. He, saw, he too saw gender ideology as a cult, comparing it to ISIS. They hired his team to conduct an evaluation of Taylor, followed by an intervention. It would be like the intervention Anne's brother had arranged for his addict son a year earlier. The rest of the story could fill another book. Taylor is now homeschooled. She, had, she has been removed um, from the influence of peers and internet and has an exploratory therapist. Her mental health is stable. During a summer in China suggested by the cult expert, Taylor's interest in her heritage was sparked. She's learning Mandarin and her, has identified the top colleges offering degrees in Chinese studies. Therapy has helped Taylor realize her early trauma and long-standing identity challenges uh, led to her gender confusion. Anne and her husband feel more positive about Taylor's future, but like all parents have told me, there's always a lingering concern. I still sleep with one eye open, Anne told me. Arranging an intervention, switching schools or homeschooling, moving to the entire family out of state, refusing to pay for college, an extended visit to another country, Parents call these last resorts to remove their child from an environment that reinforces their gender beliefs, um, nuclear options. And I firmly believe it's wise to have one up their sleeves just in case. Very important note. With a nuclear option, parents feel stronger and more confident. The child also sees her parents' massive efforts and will, we hope, appreciate them one day. A psychologist with a struggling daughter whose therapist was pushing testosterone, picked up and moved to the former USSR where she had family ties. And here's a quote from this person. It helps that the local language, which my daughter is quickly absorbing and starting to speak, is devoid of gendered grammatical markers. I think she is relieved to not have to ask uh, or answer questions about preferred pronouns and such. Here, no one is compelled to participate in a mass delusion that requires thought control and speech policing. They had more than enough of that during seven long years under Soviet rule. I grow more hopeful every day that removing her from a culture that would pathologize normal developmental struggles and push costly and irreversible medical treatments will enable 
and reinforced long-term remission of gender dysphoria and trans ideation from her life. Two years later, the mom wrote me, quote, now 19 years old, she is fully desisted, de de identifies as a woman, and is working hard to rebuild her life. She does not want to talk about her descent into the gender abyss, except to say that it was a very dark time in her life. Yes. Parents, you must consider which sacrifices you'd make to save your child. One father responded to my survey, what if a child molester moved in next door? What if your water supply was poisoned? I am pleased James, Sarah, and Taylor, and others, have moved toward accepting acceptance of their sex and away from in unnecessary medical interventions. If they'd been automatically affirmed and placed on the assembly line, their core emotional issues would have gone unaddressed. They may have felt happy with their altered bodies, but for how long? It's a roll of the dice. When I said or when I said earlier my approach to transgender identifying patients is just like with any other patient, I omitted a salient point. There's one huge difference. After their brief weekly session, my patients returned to their friends, school and social media, a world found or bound to the articles of faith. It's daunting to say the least to build a connection with heavily indoctrinated patients. They've heard over and over the, there's one answer to their predicament, transition. They cannot tolerate the doubts I plant. The hurdle may be insurmountable. Zoe was an 11th grade, grader attending a Boston school where tuition was higher than the median yearly household income. Her mother informed me that in the middle school, Zoe and her friends all declared themselves LGBT. They just had, hadn't decided which letter. Once I tried to inform Zoe that due to safety concerns, a minor like herself living in Sweden or Finland would not have access to puberty blockers, she placed her hands on over her ears and hollered, Don't tell me about the trans kids who can't get medical care. Don't you know 50% of us try to commit suicide? To her accusation um, of being transphobic, I responded, I'm anti-suffering, not anti-trans. I could almost sense her friend's and influencers in the room with us scowling at me. She refused to meet again. In my many years as a physician, I've had patients with severe schizophrenia, untreatable cancer, and other serious conditions. No one ever fired me. Do you see why I said fighting dangerous ideas has been harder than fighting dangerous diseases? When the young person has pledged allegiance to the articles of faith, the challenge faces, facing parents and therapists is brutal. Parents who've yet to face the predicament, please listen to the 500 mothers and fathers of uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria kids who responded to my survey. Many of them say flat out they are living in hell and they want to warn and teach you before you're in their shoes. They are reaching out to save you from the impossible position they're in. A child announcing, in order for me to stay in this family, you must support my self-harm. These are the parents who when they catch a glimpse of you at a park or a mall holding the hands of your toddler or school-aged sons and daughters who are still attached to you, still trusting you, they feel a stab in their hearts. If only you knew what may be ahead. If they could, they'd get a megaphone and shout. One, discuss gender with your child early. Two, get out of public schools. Three, get your child off the internet. 
Four, know who's ch your, who your child's talking to at school, online, everywhere. Five, know social media, smartphones, GSA meetings, gender clinics. Six, love without affirming, no names, pronouns, or binders. Seven, validate feelings, not beliefs. Eight, be vigilant. And nine, don't think it's not happening in your area because it is. To all that I would, to all that I would add, your child is a sponge, ready to absorb whatever comes his way. He is a work in progress, and you are his scaffolding, providing support and structure. If you don't provide a belief system, a compass, or some meaningful foundation from which to understand the world, identify truth and lies, and know right and wrong, trust me, others are waiting eagerly to do just that. Before you know it, your child is a pawn, a foot soldier, in a foreign crusade of dark and dangerous ideas, and you're the toxic parent with a home that's unsafe. You want your children to know that, unfortunately, they can't automatically trust what they hear at school and elsewhere. What they are taught can harm them. You want the source of their beliefs and values to be your home. They must become critical thinkers and bring questions to you. If you don't know the answers, you say, I don't know, but I will find out. This is the easier, this is easier said than done, of course. Consider an ideal toward uh, which to strive. The closer you get, the better. Next section is called, You Don't Need a PhD. Casey, not his real name, was a patient at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital, um, exposed by Jamie Reed. He had blockers inserted under his skin when he was 14 with promises it would relieve his dysphoria. Instead, he gained 30 pounds, his mental health took a dive, and he ended up in a psychiatric unit. Of note is, uh, is how Casey described his discovery at age 13 through his friends and online that transgenderism was the thing. His response was, holy crap, you can do that? Soon he declared he was gender fluid, meaning that his gender changed daily. After about six months, Casey says, I decided that I was a fully transgender girl. When your child first um, hears about being born in the wrong body or, um, and other dogma, I want him to say, holy crap, that's impossible, makes no sense, and is incredibly dangerous. But for your children to have that wisdom, you must teach them what you learned in these pages. You don't need a PhD. All you need is common sense. Tell your children biology matters. Sex is not assigned at birth. It's hardly a hit or miss process. Male and female are determined at conception and cannot be changed. Gender identity rests on the belief that who you are is separate from physical reality. Sure, you can believe in it, like many people believe in a soul that's independent of a body. You know it's, it's what, without scientific foundation. Explain that each of the 70 trillion cells making up their brains, hearts, lungs, kidneys, skin, and immune system is stamped XX female or XY male. The information on these chromosomes is like the carefully written code in their computers. It is unchangeable and necessary for proper function. Teach them that like the earth, their bodies are delicate ecological systems to be honored and preserved. High dose estrogen in a boy and testosterone in a girl clash with, with the instructions in each cell. 
It's a war against themselves, and they'll pay a price. A girl cannot have a boy's brain, nor can hormones and surgery turn her into a boy. Yes, hormones will masculinize a girl and feminize a boy, but the result is a synthetic persona, not the real thing, and maintaining it will require a lifetime of drugs. These are the indisputable truths your children have a right to hear and you an obligation to convey. If you know a pregnant or new mom, expose your child to that wonder. Let her or him hold a new baby and look at their tiny fingers and toes. You're planting seeds. Tell your kids being on the internet unsupervised is like driving them to the most crime-ridden part of town and leaving them there to go in and out of strangers' homes. Smartphones are like plutonium in their pockets. Nope, not going to happen on your watch. Tell your teen that in medicine, good interventions have sometimes led to calamity. Not long ago, doctors devised a treatment for people with severe mental illness. Drive an ice pick through their skulls and into their brains. It, um, it took time to recognize the harm done. In the meantime, they were awarded a Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize. Now lobotomies are one of the darkest chapters in modern medicine. There were other medical calamities. Tuskegee, thalidomide, son or daughter, um, oh, discuss them over dinner. How the doctors were so certain. Suggest you your son or daughter write a report for their history of social studies class. Those were man-made catastrophes. So are puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries for minors. Speaking of dark chapters in medicine, your child needs to know about John Money and the Reimer twins. Depending on her age, you can both watch and discuss the interviews with David and his mother on YouTube. There were countless other casualties of Money's fraudulent research. It took decades for it all to unfold. In the meantime, Money basked in the limelight. By now, you've heard this a million times, but please explain to your kids that there's no consensus. What they're being told is medically necessary and life-saving is a matter of fierce debate in the medical community. There is no scientific foundation for the claim that transition is beneficial in the long term, but there is evidence of harm. Look at the banning of aff affirming care for minors in other countries. Their medical authorities have said psychotherapy first. Challenge your teen. Why hasn't he heard any of this before? Why is this information missing from his school, his sex ed class, the websites of Planned Parenthood and Gender Clinics, HRC and the Trevor Project? Why doesn't her school invite detransitioners to share their experience and views? Isn't the, de the deliberate exclusion of facts and opinions wrong? It's something he should think about. Your children know bullying is not okay. Point out bullying galore in the world of gender Debate squashed, dissenters punished, detransitioners vilified. You might also wonder aloud with your older teen or young adult about terms such as cisgender. Why was it created? Do we also need a word for people who accept their eye color? As you learn from detransitioner Helena in chapter 3, it's all about creating categories that divide us. If you're trans, you're a powerless victim. If you're cis, you're a privileged oppressor. Our Jennifer Pritzker, net worth $1.3 billion, Martin Rothblatt, net worth $580 million, and the Admiral, powerless victims. It's worthwhile trying to have that discussion. 
if it can be kept civil with your child. It's way past time to expose the maleficence of professional associations, including but not limited to those mentioned below. To the leadership of the American Psychiatric Association, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the American Psychological Association, and the American Academy of Pediatricians, you have truly lost your way. You permitted a small group of activists, bullies, to take control. You veered away from science and became mouthpieces for a destructive ideology. You abandoned your mission and your members have broken their vows to do no harm. You know that adolescents yearn to consolidate their identity and stabilize their sense of self. Why do you promote beliefs that do not do the opposite? Why do you place children in harm's way? You churn out lies clothed in the language of compassion and civil rights. You take advantage of the trust of your naive members and an unsuspecting public. Your publications censor opposing views and debate is silenced at your meeting. This is not medicine, medicine and shame on you. To fight against stigma and for insurance coverage is honorable, but psychiatric diagnosis must be based on evidence, not compassion. Why was there no referendum uh, before making the seismic shift to normalizing disembodiment? The DSM decision was a blunder with far-reaching consequences. A special note to WPATH. Your gig is up. Your jig is up. Thank you for being so bold in your new standards of care, in quotes. In your opinion, no one is too young or mentally unstable to access disfiguring and sterilizing treatments. Now the world knows for what you stand, and it's certainly not evidence-based medicine or the health and well-being of youths. A special thanks for your chapter introducing what you call a new sexual orientation, castrated boys, a.k.a. eunuchs. This is evidence. Uh, this is deviance, plain and simple. Thank you for being transparent. In the document, documentary, What is a Woman? Your president, Marcy Bowers, called clinicians like myself dinosaurs. Thank you, Dr. Bowers, for your words. They are telling. You wish from my position based on um, biological reality to become extinct. It's not going to happen. As I write these final paragraphs, the emails from parents, family members, and um, rapid onset gender dysphoria kids don't stop. One mom after another reached out for help, along with some dads, grandparents, and siblings. A mom tells me estrogen caused her son to develop brain tumors, but doctors continue to prescribe it. An army colonel who fought jihadists for 15 years writes that when his transgender identifying daughter goes on a rant, she sounds like the true believers we captured on the battlefield. A young woman who refuses to call her sister her brother's twin, a brother, writes, I can't adequately express the type of grief this is, and it bleeds into every aspect of life. A urologist alerts me to research showing an increased risk of prostate cancer in men living as women. A librarian informs me of these new titles, Bye Bye Binary, ages 0 to 4, The Rainbow Parade, ages 2 to 5, True You, A Gender Journey, ages 4 to 8, and Me and My Dysphoria Monster, ages 5 to 8. A lawyer wants advice on a case involving a family in which not one, but not two, but three girls identify as boys. A college student writes, I was a psych major, but felt frustrated and silenced by my peers and teachers, so I switched to engineering. What about us students who have to deal with troubled and oppressive peers? 
Who stands up for us? The subject line from one mom, help, my daughter is having surgery in two days. I learn that Senate Bill 5599 allows Washington State to legally hide runaway children from their non-affirming parents and about drag summer camps for children as young as seven. Calls for censoring scientific research persist. In response to one published study, there were demands it be retracted and for the journal's editor, Kenneth Zucker, to be sanctioned. Why the tumult? It's because the research supported the rapid onset gender dysphoria hypothesis. Within 24 hours, a petition supporting Zucker had 1,100 signatures. How will it end? A lesson is provided by the Hebrew words for truth and falsehood, emmet and sheker. The letters of E-M-E-T, emmet, all stand on a flat base or two legs. But each letter of sheker is precariously balanced on a single leg or the vertex of an angle. The letters of emmet are the first, middle, and last letters of the alphabet. The letters of Sheker are side by side at the alphabet's end. The Talmud, written over 1500 years ago, explains, truth stands secure and fixed. Falsehoods totter and eventually collapse. Falsehoods are easily found. Truth requires a search. As I said in the first page of this book, my most difficult fight has not been against dangerous diseases, but against dangerous ideas. I have laid out the history of dangerous ideas upon which gender ideologies, articles of faith are based. John Money's idea, deny biology. Psychiatry's idea, normalize a disorder. The Dutch idea, block puberty. Educator's idea, we know better than you. Lawyer's idea, your home isn't safe. Surgeon's idea, you name it, we'll do it. All of it lacks foundation and cannot persist indefinitely. It will fall to pieces and Mother Nature will prevail. She always does. In the meantime, you must guard your precious family. Now that you're at the end of this book, you understand the enemy. You have ammunition. You have a war plan. I'll finish by saying, don't take this the wrong way, but I don't want to see you in my office. I'd rather not speak to you from your basement or bathroom. I hope to spare you a lasagna surprise. If I save just one family, it will have been worth it. And that is Lost in Transnation, a child psychiatrist guide or expose out of the madness. Bless you and thanks for persevering. This is so, so important. My name is Dr. Corey Gilbert and I approve this message. Thank you for tuning in to the Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert podcast. It has been an honor to serve. If you are struggling, have questions, or in need, Dr. Gilbert offers a free consultation for new clients. Check us out at healinglives.com to book a call. If this has been helpful to you, please share it, leave a review, and help us get the word out so that we can see lives changed, marriages transformed, and more people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. The Healing Life Center offers online courses, programs, books, intensives, and other services to help you live biblically and well. Discover more resources on YouTube and in Dr. Gilbert's Healing Marriage Facebook group, The Healing Marriage.